0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as a specialist in telling arrogant CEOs in tech that they're not really that special. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around the tech and media industries we are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is David Epstein, a journalist whose work has appeared in outlets like Sports Illustrated and ProPublica, but he's probably best known for his 2014 book, The Sports Gene, and his most recent book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. In it, he examines the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists, and upends the conventional wisdom about why they're so successful. A perfect book for Silicon Valley people. You should read it. David, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So we were just talking before this about what uh, th- these ideas, are we're going to get to Silicon Valley people, but talk about how you decided to do this book. Because you've been writing, talk about the sports gene and how, and how you move through that to this. Okay. It,
3: it a little bit came out of the sports gene in a way. So in part of the sports gene, uh, I criticized the work underlying the so-called 10,000-hour rule. All right. It explain
2: was, what that is. Okay. Explain the
3: 10,000-hour rule is this idea that there is essentially no such thing as, as talent. And what looks like talent is just a manifestation of 10,000 hours. Trying real hard. Right. Of what's called deliberate practice, like not mm-hmm. playing around, very... Cognitively engaged, effortful practice, uh, so that you shouldn't spend any time trying to identify your talents because it doesn't doesn't matter, right? They, right. they don't exist.
2: So practice makes permanent. That's the concept.
3: That's right. In in anything for anyone. So right. it, it ignores the idea of individual differences that we mm-hmm. have differences. Um, and this came out of a study of thirty violinists, mm-hmm. right? The ten best of whom at a world class music academy had practiced on average ten thousand hours by the age of twenty. But this there was actually just a replication of this study published last month, and it did not replicate. No surprise. And one of the strange things about the original study was that by taking an average and not including any measures of variance, right? Like I, I was a science grad student at one point. I, I couldn't believe it didn't have any measures of variance. It obscured the fact that actually people's hours were all over the place. And mm-hmm. some of uh, the best people had practiced less than some of the lower level people. But when you only report an average, suddenly it looks like this kind of magic number, right? Mm-hmm. And then this was extrapolated to kind of everything that people want to do in the world. And even... Even Anders Ericsson, the scientist who sort of did the original work, eventually came out and said in his book, gave sort of a, a caveat that I think almost like swallows the, you know, the whole story, which is that, well, this only works for like really well-defined domains uh, where you know the rules and a coach can tell you everything to do perfectly, mm-hmm. which is like not most of the world, Which would right? be
2: what? What sport is that?
3: Chess would be one, right? You have mm-hmm. a huge database of previous knowledge uh, and the... Grandmaster's advantage is pattern recognition. So if you haven't started studying patterns by the age of twelve, your chances of reaching international master status drop from about one in fifty-five to one in four. Mm-hmm. But that's also why it's so easy to automate, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's based on this recurring pattern recognition. So so the domains that are amenable to that approach are probably increasingly not the ones that you actually want to be in. Right. Uh, fortunately that's not most of the world.
2: Right. Okay. So you wrote this book, The Sports Gene, saying the premise was that there that there is
3: There is such a thing as talent, and it's quite important to figure out what yours are.
2: Right. So how do you do that in this book? And then we'll get to range. How do I do that? H- how is the idea that you have a certain specialty or that you're good at?
3: Yeah, and so I'd, I'd say one of the ideas that most got picked up from this was that actually a very important kind of talent is trainability. Mm-hmm. So the way that you respond to a certain type of training mm-hmm. uh, and, and if you're a so-called high or low responder to different types of training, that, that's what you really want to look for, right? right? You don't just want to look where are you right now, but you actually want to look at what types of training and what areas do you respond well to so that you mm-hmm. can find your areas with, with the highest potential with, growth. That you're basic. good at. Right. That that's, you're right. Actually, that's right, that's right. There we, are
2: things that people, are good at yes. individuals are good at. That's right. I, I always saying this, and people are like anybody can do anything. I'm like, no, they can't. Like, um, what are you talking about? Like, I, I constantly get in arguments at schools about that. Yeah, like kids it's
3: difficult. But there's like, so for example, there's some. Well, I don't want to skip ahead to rain. No, but okay. there's something but relevant. Go ahead. To that. No, no,
2: go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, go I was going to say,
3: so for example, there's a, an economist who looked at uh, the higher ed systems of England and Scotland in the mm-hmm. book, right? And in England, students had to specialize earlier, and in Scotland, they could keep trying different things throughout university. Otherwise, the systems were similar. And he wanted to say, who wins the trade off? The earlier late specializers, and what he found was the early specializers jump out to an income lead when they graduate because they have more domain-specific skills, but because they can sample more things, the late specializers end up picking a better fit for themselves, so their growth rates are higher, and by six years out, they fly past them. Meanwhile, the early specializers start kind of quitting their careers in much higher numbers, Mm -hmm. and so I think it's evidence like this testifies to the fact that there's a really high return on picking a good fit for yourself, even if that means you get behind for a little while while trying to figure out what that is.
2: All right. So let's talk about how you decided to do this. What got you in the idea that general is the world has become increasingly more specialized. Yeah. Like everyone has to do one thing well. Yeah. Um or and become sort of a, a it's not a monoculture, it's a, like focus. Like focus one thing. Yeah.
3: Or they're being told that. Right. So yeah. when I critiqued the ten thousand hours stuff, I got invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan no, Sports Analytics thing. Conference. Right. And that this was we were invited to debate about sports development particularly. Mm-hmm. And I knew he'd written about the importance of early specialization. I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated at the Mm -hmm. time, so I said, well, let me go look at the data. And it it showed that actually athletes who go on to become elite in almost all sports have what scientists call a sampling period, Mm -hmm. where they do a wide variety of general activities, you know, sometimes including dance and martial arts. They learn these broad skills. They learn about their own interests and abilities, and they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. Mm -hmm. And so when I brought that data up, you know, when we were walking off the stage, he sort of said... You know, you got me on that, mm-hmm. right? We only ever hear the Tiger Woods story, but it's like the right. vast exception, and golf is like a uniquely horrible model of almost everything else that humans want to learn. But, mm-hmm. And so we kind of became like running partners after that and we mm-hmm. kind of debated on our own time. And it was actually when I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, which gives scholarships to military veterans for career changes, that I started talking a little bit, you know, about— looking at research and later specialization in other areas of work and realizing it was like this incredible catharsis to them because they were being told like, well, your LinkedIn looks a little, you know, these are like Navy SEALs who were in PhD programs in physics and things like that were like, ah, they're being told, you know, their resume looks a little disjointed. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to jump into this research. And originally I wanted to look at kind of alternating chapters of when it's better to be a specialist and when a generalist, but for the more kind of complex domains of work, mm-hmm. it seems so heavily tilted in one direction for a lot of this that I kind of decided to take the book that direction. All
2: right. So talk about this specialized world, how we've gotten to this idea of you have to be a specialist or yeah, else you're
3: no one. I think it's kind of waxed and waned, but I think the most recent iteration comes out of basically an industrial economy, right? Mm-hmm. So our whole education system is built out of Taylorism or this mm-hmm. science of management efficiency, basically. Mm-hmm. And in industrial economy, specialism made a, specialization made a huge amount of sense because work next year would, for most people, would look like work last year. And you could expect kind of the same, it looked more like chess, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why some of those things are also automatable. But things changed, you know, as we moved into the knowledge economy, and now you need people who are involved in knowledge creation and creative problem solving. Uh, And I think we're still sort of stuck in an older mentality, and it just takes a long time to kind of change society, but we're starting to see some of those changes show up. But I think it's it's also just our native desire to help people get a head start. So to me, the sub-theme of the book is like, sometimes the things you can do that cause the most rapid apparent short-term progress actually undermine your long-term development mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. and i think it's one our intuition just to want a want a head start and also just momentum from you know, we're getting a lot of this advice from, like, our parents and things. And they mm-hmm. were in—more of them were in an environment where that actually did make a lot of sense.
2: Where it did make a lot of sense because you get a job, essentially.
3: Yeah, yeah. Right. You get a job. You could expect to do the same thing for a long time. And that also meant lateral mobility was limited because experience in doing the same thing over and over was such a, you know, such an important, important part Important thing. Yeah.
2: Is that inbuilt into the into the education system from early on?
3: Yeah, it is because, I mean, our education system was designed mm-hmm. uh, for Taylorism for, to, to give people certain basic skills— uh, that they could rely on kind of forever. Like, mm-hmm. al- In fact, people always say like public education is getting worse. There is no measure by which students today do not have a better grasp of basic concepts than their mm-hmm. forebears. None. Not even close. In fact, if you look at like math questions that eighth graders had to pass for proficiency in 1980, you know, sort of start of explosion of knowledge mm-hmm. economy, and then 2010, they are so much harder now. They require abstract thinking. Oh, yeah. I can't thing, do bang, my kids' math. So... It, I the, literally
2: am like, can't do it. Sorry.
3: And, that, and that's and that's an adjustment. That's probably good because they want the desirable difficulty of struggling through it themselves. You know, if you showed them, might like, the easier I just Of
2: like, I'd fail. So, <laughs> I fail eighth like, grade. But go um, ahead.
3: But yeah, so the, it just hasn't changed rapidly enough to keep up with how quickly right. the world has changed, basically. Right. But but our education system is still very much, you know, it's it's like an oil tanker. You have to so explain it explain what 40 that means by unchurch.
2: specialized, so people can understand what's the.
3: Yeah. Well, in some parts of the book there are actually areas of research that actually quantify this, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I look at some of the research on technological innovation, it's like people who all the work they did is in one or two areas of technology as classified by the U.S. Patent Office. Or in the comic books, it's people who stayed in one genre and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in some of the areas, I can actually quantify it because the researchers did. Mm -hmm. In others... You know, it's a little bit more of a semantic issue. You just say, well, it's someone who prizes depth over breadth at every turn of their career, basically. Mm
2: -hmm. Meaning that they want to go deep into one topic.
3: Right, right. And even so, the last chapter of Range is about scientists and doctors who are specialized by any measure in the scheme of humanity. But it's about how even those people stand out by, at some point, sacrificing more depth for more breadth.
2: So talk, talk about that depth versus breadth idea.
3: Yeah, so... Again, in the areas where it's quantified. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in in tech innovation, in research, it's quantified by like the number of different technological classes, about 450 in the U.S. Patent Office and all these subclasses, the number of different classes that you've worked in. And you see some people will keep drilling into the same area over and over and over. Some will be spread across lots of areas. Mm. And then the people who since about the mid-1980s who have been making the biggest contributions— are spread over a lot of areas, and then they're actually bringing them together. Mm -hmm. So they're taking things that are, like, ordinary in one area and, you know, and bringing them to some other area where they're kind of extraordinary,
2: basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has to change, I want to start first and then talk about sort of the workplace itself, is the education system itself, which should what?
3: It should teach more for conceptual understanding and abstraction. And so, for example, in some of the research on what college students understand about math that I look at in the book, there are equations that will be simple things like, I'll just simplify it a ton, like 200 plus 500 equals 700. And the Mm -hmm. students will be asked, how can you check that this is right? And they'll say, well, okay, I can do 700 minus 500 equals 200. And that's right. And then when they're asked another way to check it, they can't come up with 700 minus 200 equals 500 because they've been taught to subtract the number to the right of the addition Mm-hmm. So their teachers don't even realize that they don't actually understand any of these concepts, right? And so one of the most simplest things. There was just a study out that randomized different seventh-grade math classrooms to different types of learning. Some got what's called blocked practice. That's where you get a problem type A A A A A, a. then you do B, B B B B B, and you get really good at it really quickly. The students rate their own learning highly. They rate their teacher highly, and they're happy. The other classes got the same problems, but they were randomly assigned what's called interleaved training, Mm -hmm. where they it's like as if all the problem types were thrown in a hat and drawn out at random. Mm -hmm. And they're frustrated. They rate their own learning poorly. They rate their teacher poorly, but they're being forced to learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem Mm -hmm. instead of execute procedures. Come test time, they blow the block practice kids away because Mm -hmm. they had to learn this strategy matching. Right. The effect size was like 0.83 standard deviation. That's like taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving them to the 80th percentile, even though they studied the same problems, just, they were just presented in a way that made it slower and more difficult for for the latter group.
2: Right, which was better.
3: Better, desire, so-called desirable difficulty in cognitive right. psychology, but parents don't like it, students don't like it, the teachers get rated worse, and it's yet another thing that makes people look like they're behind until right. they have to then apply the knowledge to things they've never seen, which is mm-hmm. which is our economy, right? We right. get by on what psychologists call transfer taking your skills and knowledge and constantly applying them to things you haven't seen, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's also what computers, right, are not good at. Right. Uh, and so you want to teach in a way that facilitates transfer under the expectation that these kids will have to apply it to so things they've never seen. how should
2: people, I want to talk first about the schools, how should people learn that? Because a lot of people are talking about new schools. I, I'm, I'm, I have two kids and I'm having another one, but when I'm ever in the school, I'm like, None of this is going to help. I'm like, I'm like the worst parent. I know. You know I read I was, you tell
3: your kids not to do their not homework. to homework. Like, <laughs>
2: why? Like, it doesn't help you. Let me tell you. But I, I don't mean it overall. Some of it's yeah. interesting. But w- I was doing an essay with my son last night, and they're like, "This is the way we're told to write." I'm like, "That's wrong." That's like that. Why are you learning that? And it was so uh, tight. It was. It, I don't know what was wrong with it. But it was wrong. Like it was. Like I can't. Quantiv- tell you exactly what the problem is but one of the things that I look at is I'm constantly sitting in mix saying, like last night we had a thing I'm like this isn't going to help this isn't going to help and then there was one teacher who was just excited and they were learning everything I'm like She's gonna help. Like yeah. I could tell. Ha- like it was really interesting. And so as a parent, like I, I try to think, like why are these? And I'm always like, why are they sitting in desks like this? Why aren't they out solving problems? Why aren't they doing all kinds of weird things? Like,
3: yeah.
2: is that like a crazy idea? Or
3: no, I don't think it's a crazy idea at all. And I do think there are some people who are starting to move in that direction. It's just uh, it's so slow. And there's so <laughs> many competing interests in schools that right. don't have anything to do. With I feel it's so
2: Peter Teal. I don't times. want to feel Peter Teal. am <laughs> <laughs> okay. you know, Trying hard um, not to feel Peter Teal. No, in no. General.
3: But but I think a lot of people recognize it things have to change and that's right. why there's been this movement to try charter schools which are very controversial but people are trying new models because they mm-hmm. realize we have to try new things and we have to try to sort of turn the ship and the difficulty I think is because of the way the economy has changed Teachers have to do something that was not what they experienced when they were sure. students. And I nor what they've been trained
2: to do. That's right? right, and I think
3: that's a very difficult proposition on a large scale, so we're trying to do it on these smaller scales and then replicate it at the moment.
2: Right, and so do you see uh, that changing, educate the way we educate people, because that's how we get to specialize.
3: Yeah, I do think uh, it's, it's changing, but it's slow, um, and of course, as with everything, the people who have less get left farther behind, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's kind of how everything works, which is unfortunate. But I but I do think it is starting to change, and you know I think there was some attempts with things like Common Core to build some of that in, but then it was mm-hmm. incredibly controversial because kids were frustrated, right? But sometimes mm-hmm. they're supposed to be frustrated, and they and and it looks like uh, you know legislators dictating to the local level. But I think those were attempts to kind of build in some of this more conceptual thinking. Um, the problem is. If you want people to do the best on, like, the test right now they're going to be evaluated for, then you should just teach them that using procedures knowledge and they just memorize mm-hmm. it and whatever. But that undermines the long-term development. You yes. actually want them to struggle early on and do these interdisciplinary problems. And kids should learn things like one of the things I talk about in range is Fermi estimation because mm-hmm. Enrico Fermi used to make people sure. do this in his lab where— What is it? It's, so, like, when I took college chemistry, there was—on every test, there was one question that would be, like, one of them I remember was, how many piano tuners are there in New York? Nothing mm-hmm. to do with chemistry, right? Right. But And first you go like, I don't know, 10,000. But then if you start estimating like, well, how many people, how many families, how many have pianos, how often do pianos have to be tuned? You realize that you can actually estimate this stuff and no single estimate has to be very accurate for you Mm -hmm. to actually get the right order of magnitude. And this is like an incredibly useful skill for detecting BS in news statistics, right, for example. Right, And this is a great skill for conceptually approaching problems and all this kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing where you can start with that, and then you can actually have the kids investigate it after mm-hmm. they've done this sure, estimation. Sure, do the actual work. Yeah. Uh,
2: this is, these are the things that Google used to do, these crazy questions, you know, which is fascinating. When we get back, we're going to talk about that and more with David Epstein, the author of Range, Why General is Triumph in a Specialized World. We're going to take a quick break now. But we'll be
0: back after this. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
1: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work
2: called range why generalist triumph in a specialized world the things you were talking about before like a lot of tech companies that's how they try to test people they're trying to they're trying to get people that are Thinkers, like I guess, or or out of the box thinkers, um, although I think they hire people who are very specialized, which is kind of interesting. Uh, what what do you think about the how the workplace has to change in that in terms of hiring
3: people? Yeah, I should say that we need specialists, right? right. And I say that r- repeatedly in the book. I kind of view this the same way as Freeman Dyson, the great mm-hmm. physicist and mathematician. He once said. For a healthy ecosystem, we need frogs and birds. The frogs mm-hmm. are down in the mud looking at the details. The birds are up above not seeing the details, but integrating the knowledge of the frogs. He said the problem is we're telling everyone to be frogs, mm-hmm. and that makes us inflexible and, and very narrow-minded. Mm-hmm. And so I think-
2: Which specialists do we need? What is- well, so for Heart surgeon.
3: Okay, surgeons. So I, I mentioned in the book, yeah. surgeons, not only do specialized surgeons have fewer complications, even on top of the number of times that they've done. Mm -hmm. So if you control for the repetitions they've had, they still have fewer complications. Mm So specialized surgeons get fewer complications. That said, they're also a lot more likely to do a surgery you don't actually need. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, you know, you're less likely to have a complication for the surgery that you don't need. So it's a double-edged sword. And in medicine, this has been a, Kind of a tremendous problem where everyone's gotten so specialized that they all look at what's called surrogate markers, which mm-hmm. means you're not looking at the whole right. organism. Right, systemic. Right, you're looking at. Let's say you're just looking at blood pressure or something. Mm-hmm. There's some blood pressure drugs we now know they lower blood pressure really well, and we've assumed that's a proxy for being less likely to die of heart attack or stroke. Right. But in some cases, it turns out it's not. So people die of heart attack and stroke the exact same rate with lower blood pressure numbers, mm-hmm. and it turns out that a lot of these very specialized measures. We've assumed that they affect the whole organism, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And this is actually, when I see some, like, medical pronouncements from Silicon Valley, like mm-hmm. we're going to solve, uh, you know, I don't want to get into to your territory oh, here. Please but please, go right But when they say, you know, we're going to solve all disease in 100 years, oh, okay. um, I think that comes from the fact that when you Do build— you know,
2: I think I was at that meeting one. Ha! Okay.
3: Like so I, so I think, and actually, one of the press releases had something that then was my lead in a ProPublica story mm-hmm. about— popular medical therapies that don't work, and mm-hmm. it was like the main press release from it. But mm-hmm. I think it that comes from the idea that like somebody builds a website or something and they understand the cause and effect and they can engineer it and make it work, but we did not engineer the human body and it's extremely complex and it's not a kitchen sink or a website where it just right. works that way. And so I think there's a sort of, Hubris of translating one type of specialization to another—that even the specialist doctors are, are starting to realize—somebody mm-hmm. needs to be zoomed out, looking right. at the looking at the bigger view.
2: Right. It, it is a—it's a disease of Silicon Valley. They're gonna because they're good at search. They're gonna solve poverty. was no, like th- you no, know, you're not.
3: I didn't have much exposure to that community yeah. until my first book, and I started getting invited, to sure. b- which was a total mystery yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, oh, the circuit. Yeah, but then you realize, like, well, people are interested in performance or interested right. in performance. Doesn't yeah. matter if it's math. Edge an is what I call it. <laughs> but, but w-
2: edge maintenance. Edge Okay. Right. Um,
3: but what I didn't education,
2: g- but not that hard. <laughs>
3: what and what somewhat I somewhat clever. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, what I didn't uh, realize was there was this like pervasive feeling that if someone had, well, basically if someone had made a lot of money, it didn't actually even really matter. It didn't seem right. to me if their product was that good, then they were suddenly, because of that specialized success, Mm -hmm. deemed like they had figured out the master algorithm to the world. And Mm -hmm. I think that's like a really pernicious Mm -hmm. way of thought. Like if you want to be the kind of generalist that I describe in this book, you actually have to be curious about a lot of things to learn Mm -hmm. about a lot of things. You can't, Solve one thing, or or just make a lot of money, even if you didn't solve anything, and suddenly that's given you like the keys yes. to everything else. Yes. And I think that's like a really dangerous. It's, way a, of it's an
2: interesting question because I'm like I'm often like, why do you know about this? What is your? I don't recall you doing a sociology <laughs> degree, or in fact, you quit college, right? <laughs> like I mean, that's your fame claim to fame. And so it's an interesting question. I think it's just because we give rich people this sort of pass on intel on their intelligence.
3: Yeah, and other things for a lot of things. Rich people, and also one of the chapters is about. People 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 who develop good judgment and and do well at forecasting geopolitical and economic trends and the people who did the worst at this over a 20-year study Mm -hmm. because they had to separate, you know, luck from skills. It took a long time. That's why it had to be 20 years to see like who 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 regressed. You know that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And vastly underappreciated. Underappreciated. Right? There was a study that looked at companies that were profiled as huge successes in Mm -hmm. best-selling books, and something like 75% of them then regressed to the mean at like the normal rate you would expect. So most of them were just like in a lucky period basically. It's a very
2: good line from a musical. Is it smarter to be lucky or lucky to be smart?
3: (laughs) There's – I think we're often confused about the balance of luck and skill and things. But – so in this forecasting, the people who did the worst – were the most specialized, basically. Mm-hmm. So people, scholars who had spent their entire life studying like one or two problems and had come to see the whole world through one mental model or lens, right. like some of the people we're talking right. about, and those people actually got worse as they accumulated experience and credentials. And the people who well, did the best- they can't best, come out
2: of that area, Yeah, right? they're
3: stuck, they, they bend every- Even when they- Sometimes when they would make a wrong prediction, they would update their beliefs in the wrong direction. So instead of saying like, oh, I need to revise the beliefs that got me there, yeah. they would say like, I had everything and barely missed so they would double down on what led them astray, which mm-hmm. is like bad thinking from from, right. from any str you know, any any angle. Um, the people who did the best were these sort of we still needed those specialists because the people who did well drew on those people for sure. information. Yeah. They then just drew broadly and sort of integrated these ideas. As the researcher said, they had dragonfly eyes. Dragonfly's, Explain
2: that. Explain that. I thought that was an interesting...
3: Dragonfly's eyes are composed of thousands of different lenses, and each one takes a separate picture, and then it's integrated mm-hmm. in the dragonfly's brain, and that's mm-hmm. how this researcher likened, in this famous study, the people who had the best judgment would go around collecting different perspectives, right? They weren't yeah. really sure of themselves in anything, so they drew on the specialists for information, not for opinions, and then they would look at all these how the, all these different disciplines... What are the mental models they use to approach their problems? And they would try to integrate these, and they did really well doing that.
2: So when you think about you, how you create innovation and how you create—I'm um, going to push you towards tech a little bit. The idea is how do you stay creative? How do you create the creative thing? I feel like they're specialized and homogeneous, and therefore you're getting nothing interesting. Like you're getting something, that's interesting, but you, you miss what you miss. You don't even know what you're missing or the kind of innovation that could happen because you're perfectly satisfied with this— small amount of innovation.
3: Yeah, and I think that's not even—I think that's a problem that goes way beyond, like, Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So I I read, like, a ton of, for example, uh, of the physical science Nobel laureate acceptance speeches. Mm -hmm. And most years, there's someone who, in accepting the Nobel Prize, says— Obviously, I couldn't do this work anymore because now I would have to already say what I was going to find when I applied for the grant, so I Mm -hmm. couldn't just go do this crazy stuff, right? Right. Um, And I think that's a real problem because we're so efficiency and application focused early on Mm -hmm. that we're not having the places that were like the old Bell Labs, you know, where people could be like minds at play kind of and it was very interdisciplinary and you could do things that didn't have to be efficient. And so I think that's that's kind of a problem because you really miss out on it. I mean, if you look at the history of science, like so much of the stuff comes from things that we didn't really know we were looking for. Weren't even looking for applications. Right, 100%. And
2: and so how do you design that into the workplace where... Because you're right. One of the things you said before, I try to get to, is that computers can do a lot of that stuff. Like, oh, I, I have a line that I say all the time that anything that can be digitized will be digitized. And a lot of stuff can be digitized. Mm-hmm. And so you can't be in a profession that's digitizable. Right. Or you need to find a cre- either creative or something where you get to use serendipity and the ability to think. Like, yeah. A lot of people don't think well. Yeah. Like, that's my new thing. I've decided, like, when I read stuff, I'm like, that person can't think. Like, they can't. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was a writer there, that I'm like, he's a bad thinker. Wow. Yeah. Like, you know what I <laughs> mean? Like, a good writer, bad thinker. But it's like, th- th- thinking is a wider ranging, yeah. you know, thing than it is just knowing, I guess. Yeah. So, t- talk a little bit about that concept, the idea that, you know, how do you create new things if you don't have the, if you don't go widely?
3: So I I was in academic science for a while. And in Mm -hmm. that area, I think we'd be better off with a funding lottery, for example. And there's been some work done on this. Jr.: Let's talk about
2: that. That was an interesting—go
3: ahead. There's been some work done on this showing that when uh, scientists have to rate— Uh, you know, grant proposals, so who who should they fund? Uh, They're horrible at it, predicting Mm -hmm. which ones are going to turn into good work and which aren't, with the exception of maybe like the bottom 10%. They can Mm -hmm. say like which ones are totally ridiculous. Right. But other than that, we'd be better off with a lottery because – uh, as it is right now, it's so application-focused that there's this kind of like purifying form of selection where if you mm-hmm. can't see the application right away, it's a lot less likely to get funded. So we've proven that the scientists are poor at predicting what's so going to work out. So
2: we Jr. pick out it, – like it's the monkey doing the crossword well, Cut puzzle. the bottom
3: 10 percent because it's shown that they can pick out the bottom 10 percent and mm-hmm. then spread the funding around. First of all, you'd save researchers a huge amount of time in rewriting grants every time they get rejected because mm-hmm. they could just resubmit the same ones over and over. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd get them – much greater diversity of everything, of people's backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, geographically, um, yeah. the things they're working on, and they wouldn't have to say,
1: like they you wouldn't have s- to
3: pick. If you look at so many publications, they're, they've already been done. But mm-hmm. people need to rack up the publications, so they're just like sure. doing something that we already know or something so incremental. Absolutely, and that's clearly like not the way that we get this. Kind no, of innovation.
2: It's, it, it's it's an interesting question. Just so just have them guess, like yeah. right. Like yeah. that, you just you get rid of ten per, the the ten percent they can yeah. who just are bad. Like yeah. you know, but they're bad by badness, sake, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, it doesn't. You yeah. don't have any other better record.
3: Modified lottery, yeah, and and, right. that, and that's been shown, right? And right. a lot of the work <laughs> that's. You know, it's, it's shocking the amount of breakthrough work that has come from like sort of unfunded people who set aside time for experimentation. So mm-hmm. like one of the guys I, I profiled is Andre Geim, the physicist, mm-hmm. who he changes his area of work every five years because it gives him sort of fresh eyes. He mm-hmm. says it's not psychologically safe feeling, Mm -hmm. but he says, I like to say I don't do research, I only do search, Mm -hmm. and so he has these things he called Friday Night Experiments, where it's unfunded, you can do what you want, you know, you can goof around, you don't have to be rational, and like one of those, he famously won the Ig Nobel Prize for levitating a frog with Mm -hmm. electromagnets, that's for the silliest work of the year. Right. You get like the statue with the thinker falling Mm -hmm. on the ground, and then another one started by ripping basically pencil lead, graphite, with... Uh, Scotch tape, and that led to graphene, which is the world's first single-atom-thick material that's more transparent than glass, stronger than the Kevlar in bulletproof vests, and electrically conductive, and for that, he won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And it's all coming from this I think so he sort of represents this spectrum of when you have this unfunded area for exploration, mm-hmm. you do some of the silliest stuff, mm-hmm. and you also do the stuff that's a breakthrough because mm-hmm. you don't know what you're looking for.
2: Right, right. It's an interesting thing because, I mean, it is it is fascinating of people changing. It's very difficult to do so. I have a theory called the dancing dog theory. Once you start dancing, they like you to dance. They <laughs> like their, your dancing dog routine, whatever your routine is. And one of the things I try to do in my career, I know, is I just change it just like that. And don't do the other thing, even if you're known for it.
3: Yeah. You, well, uh, you do a lot of different things. You're, I think as Lynn manuel Miranda would say, you have a lot of apps open in your head <laughs> right now. I
2: do. But I, what I do is one of the things, someone's like, you should do reporting. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. <clears throat> and they're like, you're really good at it. I go, yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to do this.
3: I'm sure you get this a ton. So after uh, – uh, when the sports gene came out and I didn't mm-hmm. expect anybody to read it, mm-hmm. I was already moving to ProPublica to right. do non-sports stuff. Right. ProPublica doesn't care about the sports yeah, gene. Yeah, that was right?
2: interesting to me. You moved out of sports because all those sports people stay in sports.
3: Well, like, and that's what I was told. But I, I was coming in from science anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so I was told, now's the time to brand yourself as the sports gene guy. Mm-hmm. Like, no, like, no, absolutely not. That's now not about- I shall
2: write about <laughs> range. <Joshua. Yeah>. So <laughs> when you're thinking about, like, what people have to do to get th- – how do you get people to – do this. It's very hard because you're talking about leaving a safe place, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But but a lot of times, these people that are doing that are winning in the long run anyway. So right. so there are all these things like if we look at um, like there's a big renewed emphasis on specialized career mm-hmm. training now for people early on in in research that matches people for their parental parents' education, SES, test scores, their own years of education. But some get specialized career training. Some get broader training, general education first. It's the same pattern as in all these other things I write about where the people with the specialized training get out to an income lead, but they become more rigid. And so they end up spending less time overall in the labor market, so much less that they end up with lower lifetime earnings overall. Mm -hmm. And so on a systemic level, I think we need to alter incentives so that we don't assume All the time where someone is right now is a trajectory. Right. Because all of these even, like for kids, these Head Start programs, was just Mm -hmm. a review of 60-some Head Start programs that documented this ubiquitous fade-out effect. Mm -hmm. Where the best way to give a kid a Head Start in academic skills Mm -hmm. is to teach so-called closed skills that are the things that everyone's going to learn anyway. You're just teaching it to them earlier. So the fade-out is actually a catch-up of other people. Mm -hmm. But we put so much emphasis on thinking that giving someone a Head Start will will change a total trajectory. Mm That we're kind of obsessed with, with short-term development instead of long-term development. So that they shouldn't
2: have a Head Start or there should be a different Head kind Head Start of-
3: has other social benefits. But yeah, but if we want the academic benefits, mm-hmm. then then we need to accept a program that develops slower. Basically, Mm -hmm. that doesn't give the fastest improvement right away that we could possibly have.
2: Right, because we don't—because it doesn't indicate will happen later. The fade-out is interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like teaching kids to walk early. There's, Mm -hmm. like, no evidence to suggest that will have any difference on their locomotion long-term. Not at all. Everyone can walk. And so there'll be a fade-out effect as soon as everyone catches up.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like like parents when they're toilet training
3: their kids. They get all
2: freaked out about it. I'm like, the dumbest person in the world (laughs) can go to the bathroom. (laughs) That's— that's and then, a good, then the parents were like, "Oh, that think way. about it. That's you having kids?" Good
3: analogical thing. I have a, a seven-month-old. All
2: right, don't worry about it.
3: Just I'm, I'm not.
2: do not worry. Stop. Like right now, people go crazy over that. thing, mostly because you have to. You can't. The kids can't go to school until they can go to the bathroom. Yeah. Essentially, but they do it.
3: But I've looked at—so, fortunately, I've looked uh, at—there was this psychologist who wrote a book called The Range of Human Capacities where he Mm -hmm. just tried to look at, like, what's, like, the shortest and the longest uh, healthy pregnancy? You know, just Mm -hmm. looking at the range of what's the tallest and the shortest person? Right. And and from some of the work he cited, I became aware that— there's a huge amount of variety around all these benchmarks, mm-hmm. and like it's just like the ten thousand hours. When we mm-hmm. look at the average, it's yeah. like makes everybody crazy yeah. because maybe nobody actually, no kid hits the average benchmark, right? No. They're just all around it.
2: Not at all. Anyway, we're here with David Epstein. He's the author of Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. We're here with David Epstein. He's written a book called Range: Why Generals Triumph in a Specialized World. I wonder about what people have to do. Like I, 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 I don't want to do. Um, Tips, but what should people do when they're in this thing? Because I think I find people who are really specialized super right. or super unhappy or unwilling to change because they get on. I especially when I meet young people, uh, especially young tech people, they feel like they're they they've been achieving for so long, yeah, and then they're on the hamster wheel of achievement. Like if I do this, I won't do this, right? And I I often they come to me for advice, and I'm always like, mm, it doesn't matter, like. <laughs> I was more successful after 50 than I've ever been earlier. It didn't yeah. matter. None of it mattered. Like, it didn't—the only thing that mattered is that I shifted things, I think, or willingness to leave is, I think, a, probably a good thing or shift and change. So what do people have to do to get into this mindset? Or what can you do?
3: That's interesting you mentioned that, by the way. And before that, there's—I was at a a Motley Fool event recently. and oh they took God, something they he yeah, still around. And they took something from my introduction and surveyed the crowd. What do you think the age— of a founder on the day of founding of a successful startup is the average age.
2: They're
3: not young. Uh, no, and it was like 25, 35, 45, 55, and the overwhelming 70% of the crowd went with like 25, and mm-hmm. it's actually 45 and a it half is. based on this new it research. Is. And even the ones who founded younger, like the Google guys, it wasn't until they were a little older when things yeah. like really blew up. Mm-hmm. But um, to get in this mindset, I think probably the, the easiest way or the best way to do it um, has something to do with what you just said, which is, you uh, you know, knowing when to kind of jettison something or go Mm -hmm. in a different direction. And a lot of the people that I talk about and a lot of the research I look at in the book, people who become broad and that becomes their advantage, Mm -hmm. didn't set out to say like, oh, I'm going to be broad or I'm going to have range or be a generalist. What they set out was in search of match quality. They set out in search of work that fit their interests and abilities, Mm -hmm. and they kept looking and saying, that's not really right, but I learned something about myself. So, Mm -hmm. Zig, that's not totally right, but I learned something else about, you know, my options and what I can do. And then they keep zagging like Mm -hmm. that. And so they arrive wherever they're going with that kind of breadth. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. Like, I thought I was going to want to be a scientist. I was living in the Arctic when I decided to become, in a tent Mm -hmm. when I decided to become a writer for sure. And when I got to Sports Illustrated, I was a temp fact checker maybe five years older than the people I was doing fact-checking for, mm-hmm. but pretty quickly realized where I was, I was a very average scientist, like in the context of a sports magazine, I'm like winning the Nobel Prize on a weekly basis. Right, you know, right. And that becomes your advantage. Like you didn't have to be the best scientist or the best writer. You just kind right. of overlapped them. And so it was this process of searching for match quality, and by doing that, you end up with this kind of breadth. Sure.
2: I delivered mail at the Washington Post in case <laughs> you're interested and then later, people worked for me, who I delivered mail to. That was interesting. That was interesting. I never told them. Anyway, you have this thing also in here, Chapter your chapter headlines. I love them. Less of the same is more.
3: Explain yeah. that. That chapter specifically started with music, and, mm-hmm. and the, the sort of concept – and one of my favorite stories in the mm-hmm. book but, – but the concept is that if you really – when you want to become good at something – uh, and this is this is less about something over your whole career and actually about learning. Mm-hmm. You want to do things that follow in line with what's called variable practice or mixed practice, whereas some of the 10,000 hours work even says and has been interpreted as do the same thing over and over and over until it's mm-hmm. perfect, until it's automated. And if you're doing something that actually can be automated, maybe that makes sense. But again, in most things, we have to take our knowledge and skills and transfer to something else. And so you actually want to learn in a really broad variety of contexts. So psychologists summarize this work with the phrase breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Mm-hmm. Transfer, again, is how you can take what you know, right, and
2: move it apply to, it to something, something that
3: you've never seen before. Right. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training was because if it's broad, it forces you to build these instead of just doing something over and over, it forces right. you to build these conceptual models that then become flexible. Mm-hmm. So, there were things like, you know, in these naval simulations that were training simulation officers to respond to threats in a way. It's like some of them get uh, certain types of threat over and over and over and over and then again and, again and again and others get a different type every single time and they're super frustrated and then when they're all brought back later, the group that got something different every time does better on everything, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they didn't do well in the training, they so did worse flexible. in the training, right? So they had to build these models instead of right. just learning procedures to do right, over absolutely. and over. Right,
2: absolutely. And then we're talking the trouble with too much grit. Yeah. Grit's another book.
3: Grit is another book, very popular book. Yeah. Um, and grit the most famous grit study was done at the US Military Academy mm-hmm. at West Point. And grit the Grit survey is twelve question survey that awards half its points for quote, persistence of effort and half its points for consistency of interests. And the GRIT survey was a better predictor of who would get through the rigorous orientation at West Point than mm-hmm. were more traditional measures like test scores and things like that. Mm-hmm. But if you sort of zoom out, you know, life is not a six-week orientation. Right. And those people were highly pre-selected for a very short-term goal. And, and by the way, GRIT only still explained a little bit of the variance of who would drop out. But... Mm-hmm. About half of those gritty cadets then end up like quitting the army on the day that they are allowed. Mm-hmm. And the army for a while thought they had a, developed a millennial grit problem, basically. Oh, so no. one of the I millennial, know, the millennial grit. grit problem. One of the officers suggested defunding West Point because it was taking it easy on millennials. And <laughs> <so> he called <laughs> it an institution that's ca- taught its cadets to get out of the army. But it turned out they actually had a match quality problem where they yeah. still had like the industrial upper out work structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so first they tried to throw money at these cadets to keep them, right? Then the ones who were going to state, took it, ones we're going to leave left anyway, half a billion yeah. dollars down the drain. Then they realized that they actually needed internal talent matching markets because now that we have a lateral mobility economy, yeah. people who were learning themselves about in, learning things about themselves in their young 20s, in their early 20s, imagine that, would then just leave the army yeah,
2: to find shit. the jobs yeah, yeah. they wanted right. since they
3: couldn't do it internally. So what's right. actually helped their retention are these programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, go up or out, they say, we're going to pair you with a coach. Try this career track, reflect on how it fits your interests and abilities, then try another and three others, mm-hmm. and we'll triangulate a place where you fit better. And that changed right. retention. So right. I think, like, as one of the researchers summarized this area of work, we should think of grit as when you get fit, it looks like grit. Oh. So if you get a good fit for yourself—
2: Oh, that's a good um, saying. Did you put that on a
3: poster? You will—that was not my quote. It was told to me by a, you by a researcher. So— y- you will display the characteristics associated are. with grit even if you didn't before so we should think right. of grit as what psychologists call a state not a trait a trait right. is something inherent to you that you display across everything right? right and and i read that for example you're not as competitive when you play sports as I you are and, right I care so in a I
2: state you think i am they're like oh you have to be i'm like why would no, you care a, about a
3: game a state is something that is a characteristic of you in a certain context mm-hmm. and that's what grit looks like and, yeah. and, and by the way the week this book came out, I subscribed to Angela Duckworth. She's mm-hmm. the researcher most associated with yes. grit. Her newsletter was titled Summer is for Sampling. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but I'm mm-hmm. glad she nuanced yeah, the message. Everyone it. should read that. All
2: right. One of the things, Cass Riley, is flirting with your possible selves.
3: Yeah. And so that's People another. People will
2: not do that. It's, they, they don't think they can.
3: I know. I feel like if we thought of careers like we do dating, we wouldn't pressure people to like settle down so quickly. All right, explain that.
2: I mean, one of the it it is because it's stuck with millennials. They never can decide on anything. That's different (laughs) than this, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorting with your possible selves comes from the work of a woman named Herminia Ibarra, who Mm -hmm. studies how people find work that fits them, and also how they make career transitions. And what she sort of rebels against is this kind of industry of career gurus and personality quizzes that seek to convince you that by introspection alone, mm-hmm. you can figure out what you should be doing in the world. She says, actually, that the research shows that that's not true. Mm-hmm. We actually have to act and then think. We actually have to try things to figure out what yeah. we're good at and what we don't like. And so then you keep doing that, and that's how you learn who you are. As she says, we learn who we are in practice, not mm-hmm. in theory. Yes, and so she advises this sort of system of trying on different possible selves. Because when we're in one identity, we think that's like the only self we can be. Mm. But in fact, when people fill out things like strength finders or whatever, they don't fill it out the same as they progress through life because right. they learn things about themselves. They're right, like those
2: Myers-Briggs test you were yeah. take? One? Oh, yeah,
3: that, I mean, that, I would stay totally away all, from you that. You know, but. all the
2: early AOL executives like put every bit of stock in that, taking those tests and matching people like
3: that. I mean, they, they tried to do, get like, like, Ouija me to take, board board take one. Or whatever, I declined. But, yeah, that's but a like, good... You have
2: to take one. I'm like, I do not have to take one.
3: That's a good choice. In
2: America. I don't have to take your dumb test. And
3: again, right, like they do, or you do like the introvert next extrovert. Yeah. Like Again, that's that's something where it's... State not trait, right? Like right. I'm introverted at a giant party, but I'm extroverted with a small team at work. Right. right? It depends yeah. on the context. Uh-huh. Um, and there's this thing called the end of history illusion that's this psychological right. finding that we all say, oh, I've changed a ton in the past, but now I'm <laughs> now I'm done. Uh-huh. And we're wrong at every every right. stage of life, right? right? And the fastest time we underestimate future change. The fastest time of change is like your 18 to your late twenties. Mm-hmm. And so we're usually telling people to pick themselves for someone they don't even know yet basically.
2: Yeah, 100%, 100%. And then one of the things I liked also was this idea, there's several here, um, uh, is the uh, lateral thinking with withered technology.
3: Yeah, so this came out of one of the areas of research about technological innovation um, that I mentioned where starting in about the mid-1980s as information started being disseminated much Mm -hmm. more rapidly and, and widely, the shift to the people who were, Making the biggest impacts were often people who had worked across a number of different technologies and mm-hmm. combining things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that phrase, lateral thinking with withered technology, actually comes from this guy, Gunpei Yokoi, mm-hmm. who like didn't score well in electronics exams in Japan. So his friends were going to big companies in Tokyo, and he had to settle for a job as a machine maintenance worker at a playing card mm-hmm. company in Kyoto. And the playing card company was in danger of going under, and he wanted to help. And he realized he wasn't equipped to work on the cutting edge, but that there was so much information now available that he could just combine things that were already well-known, what he called withered technology, and just combine them in ways that specialists couldn't see. So the lateral thinking was taking things from one context, putting it in another. So, for example, he took some credit card industry, well-known technology, combined Mm -hmm. it with some calculator industry technology, and made handheld gaming. So the company, the playing card company, was founded in the 19th century called Nintendo, right? Mm -hmm. Yokoi turned it into a toy and game operation, mm-hmm. and that became the core philosophy of Nintendo for things like the Game Boy, which had a decade-old processor, like a screen that looks like rotting lettuce. You know, it was it was a technological joke compared to right. competitors at yeah, the time. Yes. Yep. But among other things, it was using technology, and this is a really important thing that I think a lot of people in tech miss, tech usually has a big impact when Part of it becomes standardized such that a huge number of people can use it, right? Mm -hmm. Like when the internet started having standard protocols, that's that's when it made a difference, not when it was invented. So Yokoi would use technology that other people knew how to use, so all the games were made for his stuff, whereas Mm -hmm. the other people didn't have good game selection. So he realized— that a new way to innovate in this knowledge economy was just by combining things that specialists were missing. Right,
2: basically. or or that don't work initially. That's another. That's right. th- thing that happens in tech a lot, like the, the, the everyone always craps all over glasses, like the Google Glass, which was a <laughs> shitty product, like no question, and it just was executed. How wrong. do you really feel about that? Uh, they were yeah. shitty. They, I used to say <laughs> they would render supermodels. I'm not going to use the term on my thing, but you couldn't. You supermodels are unattra- render them unattractive. Oh yeah, like essentially. I have another word I use, but <laughs> um, but it w- was interesting about it was I. Ke- and then people would be surprised because I attack them all the time. Like I'm like, oh, this is going to be the future, and I was. They were like, what are you talking about? You always insult them? I'm like, no. Directionally, it's correct. What they did tactically was wrong. That's all. Like, and it was interesting. So a lot of the the like the iPhone had been around a lot. Like and and failed and failed and failed. The idea of the iPhones, different general magic did it. Uh, there was a thing called pen computing that tried it. Mm. There was all kinds of things like that. And then there was the iPhone that just combined the mobility with the access of wireless with this. Like they were pulling from all kinds of technologies that had happened before, and then it worked. Mm. It was always right directionally, and I think that's where people in tech lose it. Like this is this won't work. I, you more than in any other industry, this won't work. I hear from tech people who are supposed to be the most innovative.
3: That's really interesting because I guess smartphones had actually there oh, yeah. had like been smartphones lots, before that, right? Lots. And so, so I we, own them all. <laughs> so if we had, I guess if we had said like, well, that's not going to work, we would have there, just.
2: Yeah, exactly. It just it did. And what's interesting is most everything that's been groundbreaking, like the iPhone, which I think did change everything, was stuff that was found technology, yeah, withered technology, which because that's why I like that word. It's like it was all things that people had thought of. It just didn't come at, at the right time.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing like Yokoi realized was All these people were racing each other for some little sliver of, like, slightly more powerful whatever it was, where he was like, there's all this stuff we're leaving behind that people have made. Right. There's infinite opportunity for this while everyone's racing for this, like, zero-sum little sliver or something. So to finish
2: up, tell me what of the people – you also – you know, in this portion you talked about what were the most successful people do. What are the the attributes of the most – I hate to say there are any because I don't think necessarily – I think everybody's different. Totally. Um, But what do you think the most successful attributes –
3: are. I think today people need to be flexible, and I think there's an mm-hmm. element of doing what's Or what do you have to
2: do t- t- to be also happier, by the way? You're okay. much happier when you're yeah. flexible. Yeah. So,
3: there's this research I write about in range called the Dark Horse Project. It mm-hmm. was done by two researchers at Harvard looking for how people find fulfillment in work. And this mm-hmm. was, they were sommeliers and dog trainers and, you know, tech innovators, all, midwives, all sorts of professions. And their dependent variable was fulfillment. A mm-hmm. lot of these people were also very successful. Financially, Mm -hmm. But fulfillment was what mattered. And what they found was they had this common trait of a sort of short-term planning, Mm -hmm. basically, where instead of saying, here's who I'm going to be in 10 or 20 years, they would go kind of like, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills and interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one, and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself Mm -hmm. or I will have met new people or whatever. And they just keep doing that a bunch. And sometimes they realize they have to start their own thing, and other times they realize they have some – and they, they come to truths about themselves, yeah. right? And so instead of the who am I going to be when I grow up, they sort of approach it as this like self-iteration, kind of being a scientist of themselves. They also spend a lot of time reflecting on like what they think they're good and bad at and what they've liked and what they have not about different jobs and say, maybe I liked this part of what I was doing but not the rest. So I'm going to keep that and mm-hmm. go to this other place. And so I think that focus on sort of a short-term planning. Um, and that, that brought me into contact with my Someone who became a role model for me, Frances Hesselbein, in the mm-hmm. book, who saved the Girl Scouts, took her first job at fifty-four, became the CEO of the Girl Scouts, tripled their diversity, turned the cookie business into a third of a billion dollars. Um, Good cookies. Added a, great cookies. Added one hundred and thirty thousand volunteers. Right, people she paid in a sense of mission, Boy not money.
2: Are sucking wind, right?
3: <laughs> She's, you know, they don't have Francis. And right. Peter Drucker called her the greatest CEO in America. She's. Mm-hmm. Uh, now she's the head of the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Institute. Mm-hmm. She works five days a week in Manhattan, and she's only 104 in November. So who knows, like, what could come Man. next? Man, yeah.
2: What's she gonna do next?
3: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but it's but it's amazing, right? And her whole thing was like doing what's needed at the time. Every time she did right. something, she's like, "I'm gonna stay for two months," and right. then she would stay longer. And...
2: We don't tolerate that among people. It's really no, interesting.
3: We'd never advise that, right? Like. Right. Uh, even I didn't write about this, but LinkedIn just had some research recently because they have these big databases that mm-hmm. are interesting on a half million members. What's the best predictor of who will become an executive? And one mm-hmm. of the most powerful predictors was the number of different job functions someone had worked across. Yeah. Um, I think each additional job function saved about three years, but mm-hmm. are we going to start – Like, going to tell people, like, oh, just change job functions a Mm -hmm. lot. Like, that's the way to go.
2: It's interesting because we are in an economy, especially because of technology, of this gig economy, people shift. Most of them are minor jobs. Like, jobs that don't move anybody anywhere. Yeah, Yeah. Um, But the the mentality of flexibility and movability, I think, is the next great workplace thing. It's like, where – I mean, I've talked to Gavin Newsom about this. Like, how do we sustain workers that can shift and move really quickly?
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: If not, we're just going to end up laying people off all the time. Like, yeah. And you don't have to. It's such a waste of human capital. Like,
3: totally. And, and I think a lot of people s- need to stop thinking about, like, lateral mobility as, mm-hmm. like, a dirty word, right? Because right? mm-hmm. both for companies, because if they do, then they're just going to always have to hire their people, like, back at a higher yeah. price. But we, yeah. we need to allow people to develop, like, broader toolboxes internally. What's the
2: best thing you've done in this? I, I turn I turn down big jobs all the time. That's my thing. Because I don't, I don't like them, like, the, big jobs.
3: Oh, the best thing that I've done, yeah, like, career-wise? I'm, like, career yeah, I'm going
2: to stay in the same Place, like you know what I mean. Don't you have a big job? I don't. Okay. I don't. Nobody
3: I guess works I for was, me. I guess no, I, was I have fooled. a lot of
2: jobs that I like, and it yeah. seems like a big job, okay. but actually, people don't. It's not,
3: a, it's a it's as I'm many, not the editor in chief, but <laughs> it's as many people. In so a bunch of the creativity researchers I looked at and say they say creative people have a network of enterprise. That's right. That's right. So they have a lot of stuff going on. They switch between them. If they get stuck on one, they circle back to another, the network of enterprise. So you, yeah, so you've I'm just got an employee. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. But you're the head of the network. Of your network of enterprise. But, <laughs> an
2: employee is what I am. I mean, for, but what, do you, what, what is the thing that you've done? For, that, for
3: me, the best thing that I've done, mm-hmm. you mean like that, that resonates with yes, stuff in the book? Yeah. Oh, changing careers a bunch, right? Like when I was mm-hmm. in science and I got off it, and, and realizing that that's never wasted. Right. That became my no. advantage. And I continued, especially early in my career, like, I have no idea what I'm doing next, What are you doing next? I have no idea.
2: What do we want to do? I said, I, I don't
3: know. Surf. Never, when I was like, I've gotten like— I heard l- the
2: WeWork CEO job is free. But <laughs> <don't>.
3: <laughs> I've gotten like, yeah, I'd probably do it as well as it was going no, You know but, what? You could. <laughs> um, F- no big way. Big
2: secret way. Um, You'd be shocked by how incompetent so many people are. Um,
3: I don't like telling people what to do, but um, the— Well, neither
2: did Hay, but— <laughs> I guess
3: so. Um, I've gotten like linearly less goal-directed since right. I was 16 when I was going to like right. go to the Air Force Academy and be an astronaut. Right. So now I wanted
2: to go into the military too. All the too. things, yeah. I was gay. I couldn't go. I still, that's— They didn't let the gays in then. That's annoying.
3: I, I still up now until just not recently— Now they're letting
2: gays st- in again but <laughs> <laughs> we're back to that. <laughs> Who can that? keep track? I, yeah. I'm too old now.
3: Um, but I've always focused on sort of building my toolbox. Mm-hmm. So when I became a staff writer at Sports Illustrated on the strength of my science background, mm-hmm. which was, you know, an odd thing— I promptly left and went to be an intern at ProPublica because Mm -hmm. I was like – my learning curve is sort of leveling off here. Yeah. So I had like a nice window over 6th Avenue and all this stuff. And then the next day I was scanning, you know, lobbying disclosure forms for another mm-hmm. reporter, mm-hmm. which seems insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I like but it. But it was, but then I went back with all these new skills that mm-hmm. the people around me didn't have. So once again, it's like bringing some, it's like an intellectual arbitrage opportunity. You're like taking something that's normal at ProPublica and bring it to this place where it's not normal. And then I eventually went back to ProPublica and I'm bringing magazine writing, which wasn't as normal there. Over. Right. And so it's, Really focusing on building a toolbox instead of worrying about like where I am on the ladder, right? So I went down from being a senior writer to just being like an intern or yeah, and then don't a reporter. Go for titles. Yeah, who cares? So I've really focused on like building my my tools and doing things of interest to me, and and not trying to brand myself, right? Right. The, because that's not the life I want to live. Frankly.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. So you're not going to become a guru of. Changing your doing speeches nope. to, with rich
3: people. Nope. Whatever no. I do next, for sure it like will
2: it's be like a shoe in.
3: Um, I mean, I'll I'll talk to, if people yeah. want me to talk about the things I'm interested in. I love yeah. talking about the things all I'm interested right. in. But.
2: Okay, this is a great book. I really enjoyed it. It's really it's a it was. I, I don't usually like these kind of books, and I love this one. There's some, some, every that. now and then I get a book like this that I really like. Um, there's a couple of Jason Freed's another person I love. He as a base camp. He's all these issues. and It's really interesting to think about, as you should. Which is essentially, what is it? What's the old expression? Uh, Oh, what's the expression? Master of none. The jack
3: of all trades, master, of, master of, none. of none. Okay, I think it's culturally telling that we drop the end of that phrase, which is oftentimes better than master of one. But mm-hmm. everybody seems to have just cut that part off. But, but that's it, how it actually goes.
2: What is the actual
3: it go It actually goes jack of all trades, master of none. Oftentimes better than master of one. That is
2: a great right? thing. Right, but to we ditch end the end. We do ditch the end. Yeah. I'm going to end on that, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. David, where can people find you online?
3: DavidEpstein.com, and I'm at DavidEpstein on Twitter. And Range
2: is available, all the places you buy a book. Yeah, yeah good. Um, If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you share it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.